My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. Our guest today is Rich Devaney, a Navy SEAL commander who served over 20 years in the teams and deployed overseas 13 times, of which 11 were to Iraq and Afghanistan. He was also the officer in charge of training for a specialized command where he spearheaded the creation of a directorate that fused physical, mental, and emotional disciplines. He led a team that designed the first ever mind gym, and that helped special operators train their brains to perform faster, longer, and better in all environments, especially high stress ones. Since retiring from the Navy, Rich has worked as a speaker and consultant with the Chapman and Company Leadership Institute and Simon Sinek, Inc. Rich is also the author of a new book due for release on January 26th, so coming up, and it's entitled The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, what a, you know, what a great time to have you. It's a weird time, of course. I mean, we're in the holiday season. Uh, COVID is making a bit of a resurgence and people are still kind of figuring out, you know, what's going on out there, the world, the political upheaval, the, the, you know, the health upheaval, uh, all kinds of challenges. 20, 2020 people are, you know, wringing their hands about how this is the worst year they've ever experienced. What a time for you to release a book. <laughs> yeah, called the 25 <laughs> hidden drivers of optimal performance because if we ever needed such a thing it's now it's amazing uh it's amazing how timing works out you don't even plan for it obviously the book the idea of the book and and the process of the book began before the 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 kind of the mess of 2020 hit um but it's interesting and in, you know how apropos it is uh you know one of the things i talk about in the book is optimal performance and and you know it's this difference. I, I've always been interested in optimal performance as opposed to peak performance. Peak performance is this thing that that so many people are chasing all the time. Right. Uh, you know, business executives, teams, things like that. How can we be, how can we perform at our peak? And oftentimes they looked at the SEALs uh, as they do athletes uh, for um, advice on peak performance. And I kept on telling people, hey, SEALs aren't peak performers. We're, we're, we're actually optimal performance because peak is an apex from which we can only come down. Um, peak has to be planned for, prepared for, scheduled right um and trained for right the the pro athlete the pro football player for example can spend his entire week and does spend his entire week planning to peak for three hours on sunday um any one of us can plan to peak for the hour or two we're giving a presentation or doing a podcast right um but real life actually um requires optimal performance optimal performance is how can i do the very best i can with what i have in the moment whatever the best might look like right so sometimes the best looks like peak. It looks like flow states and, and everything's kind of clicking, right? Uh, sometimes your best is, hey, you're our head down and you're stepping forward inch by inch, right? It's muddy, it's gritty, it's grimy, it's dirty, it's uncertain, it's scary, but you're just moving forward, right? So that that also is optimal performance. That's the best you can do in the moment. Um, and man, 2020 was such a year for us to have to perform optimally because none of us, mm. I would say, <laughs> felt like we were at our peak, <laughs> right? We were all right. we were all here now because we performed optimally. And I think this this book and the attributes talk more about about that, which is really more near and dear to my heart. Yeah, uh, that's a great distinction, which clearly uh, is lost in the milieu of, you know, all the great, uh, you know, phraseology and, you know, uh, 
you know, these, these, these ideas like peak performer, peak performance, hu- you know, peak human performance, all these things, uh, we're so focused on hitting the zenith that, you know, we forget that. And so what's about the rest of the time? Are we just crap? And then, you know, right, right. right and then it's that one time, you know, during the big game, we make the big catch and, you know, so it's so, uh, it's so appealing to know that actually, wait a second, for, you know, peak performance, if we're, op- if we become optimal performers, those, those peaks will happen because right. we're optimal. Perform- it's brilliant. So, um, I, and I'll tell you what, I can't wait to talk about the book. We'll do that uh, shortly, but I want to kick off really with, you know, what, ins- you know, what inspired you to become a special operator, to join the Navy SEALs and, and how, you know, I'd love to hear about that journey and how you ended up uh, in charge of training for like one of the premier special operation units in the world. Right. Yeah. So how, how, how does that all happen? Tell us tell us your journey. Well, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I actually it's interesting because it's not so interesting. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut. I was an average kid. Um, I have a twin brother and my twin brother and I loved flying. My dad was a private pilot. uh, So we used to go flying with him all the time. So we wanted to be Navy pilots since the time we were probably six, seven years old. And, um, and, you know, there was nothing, uh, there was nothing really, uh, I don't know, uh, dramatic about my upbringing. It was a really nice upbringing in a nice neighborhood with a nice school and a nice family. Um, And um, I was an average kid. I was an average student. I was an average athlete. uh, And I had read about the spec ops uh, teams, uh, in an article I saw after the first Gulf war. So in, in like 90, in 1990 or so okay. Newsweek came out with this article. Um, and it was called secret wars. And there was a picture of a, of a guy with a perfectly camouflaged face on it. And I was like, Oh, cool. So I opened up this article and it was about, I don't know, the normal, uh, you know, eight to 10 page article. And it kind of detailed outlined all the different spec ops units. So you had the air force, uh, CCTs and PJs, the green berets, the, uh, mm. the, uh, Rangers, um, and of course the Navy SEALs. <clears throat> and what I noticed that was that the article was peppered with pictures, uh, probably 20, 25 pictures or so of all these different spec ops guys in different environments. So you had a guy in, okay. in, in parachute gear in underwater jungle, uh, uh, winter, uh, you know, snow conditions. And, uh, out of the 25 pictures, like 20 of them were Navy SEALs <laughs> and it was, and they were all, they were, they were SEALs in all these different environments. I was, I was like, man, all these guys they do everything. They're everywhere. Right. And so I said, that's really fascinating to me. And so I, I, um, I especially was drawn to their, their kind of proclivity in the water because I was a water rat. I grew up in, on the coastline in Connecticut. So okay. I just loved, I love being in the water. And the fact that these guys made the water, which the ocean, which is so, I mean, it, it's very hostile to humans, right? I mean, there's cr- bone crushing temperatures, bone crushing mm-hmm. pressures, um, you know, it, it, it will, it will humble the best, strongest human being. Um, the fact that these guys made this place their home, right? The 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 this this kind of really hostile environment, their safe haven, uh, was kind of uh, audacious and attractive to me. And so I said, you know what? I, I think I'm going to try this. Um, and I never wanted. Uh, ultimately, I said to myself, I never wanted to be a pilot and look over at a SEAL platoon and wonder if I could do it. So I, I made my decision. I, I said, okay, I'm going to try this. I was fortunate enough to to get selected for SEAL training. Um, and I had, um, I had up to that point been really interested in and had on a couple of occasions you know, put myself in positions of people who were better than me. When I played sports in high school, I wasn't that good of an athlete, but I kind of just, I was with athletes who were pretty good, you know, and so I, I, it brought up my athleticism and it challenged me in ways. And this is how I felt when I got to SEAL training. 
Um, and I went through, you know, you go through SEAL training, you go through something like that. And, and you kind of don't think about it at the time because you start with, I don't know, we, our, my class back 20 plus years ago was 165 or something we started with and we graduated 38, right? Those are normal numbers. Right. And I remember you, I graduated and I looked around at these people, these guys who I graduated with, who are now all my teammates and brothers. And I said, man, these are, these guys are so much better than me. I mean, they're just awesome. I mean, it's, I just felt so humbled to be around them. And then I got to a team and felt the same thing. Um, and then I can continue to advance my career and got to different, you know, different commands, um, and felt the same thing. And what was interesting is as these, as these brothers and teammates, as I hung out with them more and more and, and got to know them, of course, as, as friends and brothers and teammates, I realized they felt the same thing. <laughs> they felt like everybody around them was better. And what I, you know, it, 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 it dawned on me that we were just a collection of dudes who, who always wanted to challenge ourselves by trying to put ourselves in positions of teams and people that they mm. felt were better than them, that they felt up their game. Right. Um, and that's, that's what, that's what drove me in and that's what helped me stay in. And then that's what helped me kind of, uh, kind of walk the, walk the career path I did. And I was for, I mean, all these, these assignments that you get there, you, you're oftentimes fortunate enough to get these assignments. And I was fortunate enough, um, and ended up in charge of training for one of the specialized commands, which allowed me to really, uh, just because of the nature of the job dive into, Hey, why is it that guys make it through? And why is it that guys don't make it through? What, what are those, what are those things? And at first it was, in the context of selection assessment for this specific unit. Um, and then as I thought about it more and more and it kind of marinated in my brain and I moved towards, you know, retirement, you know, cause that was 10 plus years ago that I was in charge of that. And then I retired four years ago and, um, and I got in front of these businesses and these businesses would often come to me and say, Hey, we're putting together these teams and we're getting the best people, best sales people, best graphic designers, best, whatever. Um, but a lot of times, you know, when, when uncertainty hits us, when strife hits us, the teams fall apart, we're toxic, you know, so we're getting dream teams that are falling apart. And I, it, it was really almost intuitive. I said, well, it's because you're, you're selecting based on the wrong things. You're selecting based on skills versus attributes, which is really the, the impetus of the idea of the book. You know, um, this is, it, it, this is really amazing and it should be, and I'm not sure how much of the general public understands this, but I mean, it really should be broadcast um more often especially when with respect to the marketing of the brand when it comes to special operators and and what it takes to become for instance a navy seal mm -hmm. because everyone assumes the wrong thing you know everyone assumes that you've got to be this peak you know the alpha human right right they, what they don't understand is that you know it's actually all it, it's the things we don't see that makes you the alpha, that makes you the, the optimal performer, that makes you capable of becoming a special operator. Yep. And, we, you know, we don't even understand it. And you wonder why all these people that you would assume, because I've heard it over and over again from special operators telling me their stories, saying that, you know, this guy should have made it. You know, he was a star <laughs> yeah. athlete. He was, you know, the, the guy was able to bench uh, bench press 450 could run, you know, the, the mile in you know, six and a half minutes, you know, just incredible yet, you know, ring the bell. They're out, they're out, yeah, they're out. Yeah, yeah. And you don't, and, and you start to figure out, wait a second, why are, you know, why is this guy different? Why is, you know, is rich different? Um, because everyone thinks like you that, Hey, I, you know, I was just average, but actually it's the attributes that make you, uh, not not average. In fact, 
most people are on average. Everyone is a unique mix, as you point out, of these, these different attributes. And there are certain ones that if you have them, going to make you a great special operator by the same token. There's others that'll make you a superstar graphic designer or right. a top achieving salesperson. Right. And this is the brilliance of your book, which, by the way, um, I, you know, I had the honor of getting uh, an advanced copy and being able to read. I've read it, I've, I've delved deep through it, studied it. Um, it's brilliant. It's uh, it's a great book. I can't wait for everyone to get their hands on it. Uh, January 26th, I think uh, you mentioned is, is the day. Is that correct? Yep, that is correct. Yeah. And thank you for that. That uh, it's, it means a lot that it does resonate. So it, it resonates, you know, I think it will resonate with anyone that wants to achieve. Yeah. With anyone that does want to uh, do something above average, whether or not they consider themselves above average. Right. And so let's dive in to the attributes. Right. Um because you mentioned where it's where where you kind of got the idea to you know start figuring out what was going on here with the selection process. So in 2010, you had a huge dilemma. You were in charge of training, as uh, as you mentioned, for a premier special operations unit. In fact, what's considered maybe one of, one of the best uh, in the world when it comes to special ops teams. Uh, and and what you did is you selected candidates from. Other special operations teams. I mean, like the best of. So you were you were bringing in the best of the best, right? Guys that who had already proven themselves to be exceptionally skilled and committed, but crazily, they you still had a fifty percent attrition rate, right? And and you couldn't effectively explain why they were not making it and why others were, and that. So in attempting to better understand why you had that attrition rate. You tell the story of Rear Admiral Draper Kaufman in the book. You talk about how Draper Kaufman, uh, during World War II, organized the first U.S. Navy demolition teams, which later gave rise to the SEALs. So I'm going to quote right. you here. Yeah. I want to quote you here, and I want to ask you a question. The success of D-Day, the largest seaborne invasion in human history, would need to be preceded by a small group of infiltrators relying on a handful of volunteers risking their lives to gather intelligence and clear a path. Draper Kaufman, who at the time was a Navy Lieutenant Commander, was appointed to organize this new unit. Kaufman understood though, that being a strong swimmer who could sneak across a beach wasn't enough for his recruits. He needed men who could think on their feet, men who could adopt and flex as fast as the environment did, men who had the ability to be aware of multiple aspects of their surroundings, could work together as a team and learn new things quickly and do so while under unfathomable stress. Kaufman realized, in other words, that he wasn't looking for recruits who knew how to do the job, but rather men who could do the job. The difference in that single word between how and could is enormous. Rich, <laughs> explain that. Yeah. What, you know, that difference between you know, guys um, that could do the job versus, you know, knowing how to do the job. What talk about what that single word means, what the difference is. Sure. And I'll, and I'll actually, I'll put a little personal spin on it. Right. I mean, I went through SEAL training 20 years ago. SEAL training has not changed much. Um, in fact, I think it's gotten better. Uh, okay. I, in SEAL training, every candidate to include myself spends hundreds of hours running around with big boats on their heads. You know, these, these, these boats are hundreds of pounds. You run around everywhere with them on your heads. You also spend hundreds of hours exercising with telephone poles, which are about 300 pounds. And you're doing sit-ups and push-ups and running around with those things on your shoulders. Um, okay. 
So hundreds of hours running around with boats on your heads and, and telephone poles on your shoulders. Um, I had also have also over my 20 year career, I completed uh, hundreds of combat missions overseas and several hundreds, if not you know, tens of, you know, if not thousands of training uh, evolutions. Never on one of those, on one of those did I ever carry a boat on my head or carry a telephone pole on my shoulder, <laughs> right? So. So the idea was, the idea is that the, the, the act of carrying a telephone pole on our shoulders and carrying boats on our head wasn't training us for this. It wasn't giving us the skills on how to be a Navy SEAL. Mm. Um, they, it was, they, they were drawing up attributes to see if we could be, if we had what it took when we reached zero. And so Kaufman's kind of unconscious genius when he first put together his, the, the, what, well, what, 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 first the NCDUs, Naval Combat Demolition Teams, then became the UDT, then became the Navy SEALs, um, was that he, uh, he didn't have a lot of time to do it, and he needed people, he needed men who could um, operate when things went south. You know, of course, you know, he could train people to, to swim uh, across the beach, he could train people to lay demolition, he could train all the requisite skills. In fact, a lot of the guys he had, had the requisite skills, but he even needed more than that. He didn't know if they could actually do it. So he said to himself, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to design uh, the very first week of training, and it's going to be a week long, five days uh, of just nonstop stuff, physical activity, tests, uh, you know, and you know, problem solving, things like that, um, just stress, grenade simulations, all that stuff. I'm going to give the guys during this week about two hours or three hours of sleep for the entire week. That's it, right? Uh, and I'm going to run this for five days, and I'm going to just see who I end up with. Um, and, uh, and that first hell week, I think, you know, over 90% of the guys quit, right? Um, but he knew in that, in, you know, after that, that, that week that the, the, the small group he had um, was the group he knew wouldn't deteriorate when things went south. You know, they showed the attributes. Um, and th so Hell Week still is the coup de grace of SEAL training. It's the fifth week instead of the first now. Um, and all of us, every Trident wearer has that distinction. We've all been through Hell Week. You know, that's that's kind of, we, we all know. If you haven't been through Hell Week, you're not a Navy SEAL. Um, so really what, what it comes down to is, and what I had to basically do when I was running this training, uh, this, this assessment and selection for this other command, was I went back to the basics and, said, hey, basics and I said, hey, I think we are, uh, we are unable to articulate why guys are not making it through because we're, we're trying to explain it from a skills-based perspective. What we're saying is like, hey, this guy didn't make it because he couldn't shoot the way we want him to shoot or he couldn't do this clearance problem the way we wanted to, to do the clearance problem. Um, but it was, it was insufficient in, in that every guy who was there who was showing up had done that hundreds of times so we'd say that and the 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 the, the natural uh answer from the leadership well why, why, why couldn't he do it i mean that doesn't make sense to me if this guy's a a, a rock star um right. and coming to you as a rock star why couldn't he do it and so 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 i realized we needed to explain you know failure and success through the attributes and so really what i think i need to do is i need to level a bubble and, and kind of explain the difference for your audience okay um okay. the difference between skills and attributes okay skills yes. are skills are not inherent to our nature okay no one is is born with the ability to throw a ball ride a bike or shoot a gun okay those are things we learn those are things right. we can be taught okay um, they also, skills also direct our behavior in known situations, right? Here's how to ride a bike, here's how to drive a car or throw a ball, and here's how to shoot a gun. Okay, so they tell us what to do in, in known situations, and, you know, and we apply a skill in a known situation. Therefore, 
um, they are very easy to assess, measure, and test. We can see how well someone does any of those things. And we can measure it, and we can test it, and we have codified results. This is exactly why most dream teams, whether you're military, whether you're business, whether you're anywhere, uh, get seduced by skills-based assessments. They say, hey, I'm going to get the best graphics designer, I'm going to get the best salesperson, I get, you know, best graduates, right? Best physical, best, um, best physical um, qualifications. I mean, doing a lot of push-ups is great, um, but it doesn't really tell us a lot other than the guy knows how to train to do a lot of push-ups, right? Right. So, so we often get seduced by these visual cues that are skills. Attributes are different. Attributes are inherent to our nature. Uh, we're born with them, right? These innate qualities such as patience, adaptability, resilience, we're actually born with them. We can see these, we can see levels of these in small children, okay? We can see levels of patience and adaptability and resilience in small children. Certainly they develop over time and over the course of our lives, we get better and better at the ones we have more of, <clears throat> but, they, but we're, they're more innate, okay? Um, they inform our behavior rather than they dictate, right? So in other words, my level of resilience or, or a child, say a kid's, a, a, a five or six-year-old's level of resilience and perseverance and adaptability will inform the way that child learns how to ride a bike when that child falls off the bike 12 times or a dozen times while trying to do it, right? So they inform how we show up to situations. Um, and therefore, because they're running in the background, because they're hidden, they're very hard to assess, measure, and test. Um, we can't see them. The, the, the times that we see them the most and the most visibly and viscerally are in times of challenge, stress, and uncertainty. Because in an uncertain environment, when we can't, when we can't make sense of the world, um, we can't apply necessarily a known skill. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill to an unknown environment, okay? What we need to do, what we're, what we're forced to do in uncertainty and challenge and stress is lean on our attributes so that we might figure the situation out, right? We lean on our patience adaptability. So an example that's near and dear to all of our hearts is 2020, <laughs> okay? Right. Um, and COVID-19, when all of us were thrown into a quarantine situation overnight, okay, back in March or whenever that happened for all of us. Very few, if any of us, had the skills that we could immediately apply to the situation, all right? All of us leaned on patience, adaptability, resilience, open-mindedness, situation awareness, because we said, okay, what's going on here? It was an unknown, uncertain, challenging situation that we had to figure out. And so, in fact, throughout the, the time frame, throughout 2020, as 2020 progressed, we have all actually exercised a lot of our attributes because we've been figuring this thing out as we've been moving on. So challenge, stress, and uncertainty bring these attributes to the fore. This is exactly why SEAL training, whether it be basic training or the training I happen to be running, it was a perfect laboratory inside of which I could see this stuff because that is SEAL training by its very nature, by its very definition is throwing someone into uncertainty, challenge and stress. That's what we do, you know? And so as soon as we began to shift that optic and we decided, okay, which attributes are we looking for? Let's see if we can, um, let's, let's look for those in the, in the same training evolutions that we've always been running. Now we could say, oh, wait, okay, wait a second. This guy didn't make it through. It wasn't because he was a bad shot. It was because he didn't, he wasn't able to task switch properly, or he wasn't able to be resilient enough, or he wasn't able to adapt the way we need him to adapt. Um, and so that's how it really came to, uh, to fruition, at least the initial idea. And then as I got out of the military and realized, wait a second, this is more than just SEALs, right? This is, this is everybody. We all run on these things and it can inform all of our behavior. And so the book was written really with the idea of how do all of us look at our attributes under the vein of how to perform optimally, how to do the best we can in any environment. Yeah, I, just uh, incredible because the laboratory that you are operating in to uncover the, the, you know this this missing uh, you know this the, the, this missing uh, pattern 
that you weren't that you weren't looking. It's you know it's 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 funny. You, it, it's almost as if it was right in front of you all this time. Yeah. In fact, um, for you to come, uh, it it reminded me while I was while I'm reading the book, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this intersects somewhere else with another book I read, uh, and. Uh, it was a book called Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel uh, about the science of flow states. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed Stephen Kotler for the Alpha Human podcast. And his book, it digs deep into how and why certain humans have the ability to access an altered state of consciousness called, or what he calls, ecstasis. Yes. Uh, that state that allows uh, humans to perform at the this word peak at the peak of their abilities as if by instinct. Right. I, and he devotes part of the book to how the Navy SEALs are able to tap into flow states and, and the high cost of screening for those that can flip the switch, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, for those that can get into the zone, the, 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 the screening and the cost of training for that. And, you know, I want to quote him from the book. Uh, he says that during the debrief, uh, we found ourselves sitting in a windowless conference room talking to Navy SEAL team leaders about the high cost of screening for ecstasis. Mm -hmm. And he says that the issue wasn't just financial, the half a million dollars that it took to train a Navy SEAL uh, and, you know, the millions it, it, it takes for those uh, premier special ops teams like the ones you were uh, running. What He says that what concerned you guys more was the human cost again mm -hmm. and again. He says that we heard how emotionally devastating their screening process can be, how failure ruins careers and lives. And the interesting thing, uh, Rich, is that the meeting he discusses in the book is actually with you. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I, you know, and I like, I, I knew there was something going on here when I was reading this. So I look back and it turns out that, you know, he doesn't reveal your name in his book. He right. refers to you by a nom de plume, but, you know, it, he talks, you you had obviously read Kotler's previous book, The Rise of Superman, while you were in the, the teams. Yep. And you invited him, apparently, to explore this concept of flow states and to get his insights on how to flip that switch. Yes. So when you had Kotler there, um, he kind of describes how far down the path to not just screening for those uh, individuals that could access flow states your, that your team was. How, you, were, you guys were far down the path, but also how you were training for it. So yeah. you, you, we knew you knew how to screen for it, but also you, you were training uh, these guys to access those flow states. Can you describe how and where this intersects with your exploration and discovery or identification of the attributes, the, the yeah. attributes of optimal performance. Well, and it's a, yeah, it's it's a great synergy, and it's it's really wonderful you picked up on it um, because uh, it's true. And and what I talked to Stephen and Jamie about really initially um, was this idea that we were interested in flow states because we actually wanted to access them more. Okay, um, we are we were we were always optimal performers. In other words, we'd always perform the best we could in no matter what uh, situation we were in. And the and the example that's given in the book and the mission that I, I gave him the unclassified version of um, was was actually, I had to really draw on my data banks to find that in my memory because most missions aren't very flowy. 
<laughs> I mean that you know, because because every thing always goes wrong. I mean you know that it's kind of that old old uh, saying: no contact or no plan ever survives contact uh, first contact with the enemy. Right? You're always going to have to adapt. You're always going to adjust. In this one, we actually were, um, but it just seemed like we were kind of moving like this flock of birds, which which we which we trained to do both through physical training but also these attributes, these attributes, you know, so, so these attributes, if you have the proper mesh of attributes and skills on a team, what you get is this thing that I call dynamic subordination. And, and I know Steven and Jamie talk about it in the book, because it's something that, that I kind of told them uh, about and kind of described to them in our process, right? Dynamic subordination basically throws the whole normal task organization on its, you know, it kind of throws it out the window, right? The pyramid that we think of the hierarchical pyramid that the military people think of in the military, that doesn't happen in a SEAL team or a team that's very, very high performing. Neither does the flat uh, line, neither does the upside down pyramid, which is really very phys- philosophical. And the leader's like, hey, I, I work for you and I care for you, which is good. I, I don't want to, I don't, I'm certainly not bashing it. I would actually encourage it. Um, but in a high performing team, things happen much more dynamically and much more seamlessly. And so dynamic subordination is this idea that um, in a team, in a high performing team, such as the SEAL team, um, problems, challenges, or stress, whatever that is, whatever form it is, can come from any direction at any moment at any time. Um, And when it does, the person who is the closest to the problem um, and most competent or capable steps up and takes lead immediately, right? And then everybody else follows. And it's a dynamic swap between leader and follower relationship. So, so, so wherever the problem is, it's like a flock of birds, right? Suddenly, suddenly we're going this way. We're following this guy, you know, the sniper hat, you know, sniper is leading us out. We've got him. Suddenly maybe it's the, it's the breacher guy or it's the, the, the next assaulter, or maybe it's the OIC who knows. Um, but the environment changes and the environment dictates who steps up and takes lead. And then whoever does, everybody follows. Right. So it's interesting. Cause I also call it, I also call it alpha hopping, right? People think there's an alpha in in every team every unit that you know the the kind of the leader right well in in high performing teams the alpha has to hop right because because no one person can ever be can always be in charge all the time right i mean you have to defer you have to default and i would even say this just just think of a great marriage and i i i use my own i mean my wife and i've been married for 20 years and we we've we've achieved this ability to kind of lean on on each other when we need to um, and you think about, you know, this idea, a lot of people say, oh, who wears the pants in the family, all that. I don't like that. I don't like that phrase because for me, that phrase doesn't indicate a high performing marriage, right? Or a high performing team. And I don't want to, certainly don't want to comment on marriage, right? But, uh, but a high performing team in a marriage, my wife and I, sometimes she steps up and takes leads and I follow because she's the person who knows exactly what to do in the moment. And I am, I am following her. And then other times, I'm the person who knows how to, you know, knows what to do in the moment. And I step up and take lead and she follows. Right. So, so that's alpha hopping, you know, and, and the alpha in a high performing team needs to hop to where it, where it goes. Um, and I think that's the concept that we explored with Steven and Jamie. If you do that correctly and consistently, if you create a team that does that, that will start to feel very flowy and flow states and ecstasis will, will begin to emerge in, in environments uh, more frequently as it did with us. The key is, as, as you've described, um, and as is described in, in Kotler's book when he recounts the story, you talk about it as a, you know, a flock of birds, is that you, you end up being able to do that alpha hopping without communicating with each other. That's exactly right. Yeah, just like, yeah, just like birds do, because you understand each other. So what, what does this take? It takes an enormous amount of trust. All right, so 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 you have a trust in each other, in each other's attributes, which so the basics of SEAL training, the fact that the fact that this guy, I could meet a, a Navy SEAL on the street tomorrow, right? I'd never met before, okay. but knowing that guy has been through 
SEAL training, been through BUDS, been through Hell Week, been through all that stuff, I immediately know something about that person, about that man, right? Because I know there's a certain amount of, there's a certain amount that I know I can count on him for because he's been through the same experience I have. So I know exactly what I'm going to expect in that, in that vein. Well, that just builds as you work with guys over the years. And so when you get to very high level units and you've been working together for a long time, that trust in competence and in attributes is just so, um, so strong that the, I mean, it's easy for you to shift and flow. It's easy for me as the guy in charge to say, oh, wait a second, I'm right now I'm in support, <laughs> you know, right, okay. I'm in support of my operators who are up there right now. And then as soon as they need me to be in charge, I'll be in charge again, right? It's so trust is the fundamental factor for, di for, for dynamic subordination. Um, and I think trust is a fundamental factor for flow states in teams and groups. You know, this is a really powerful um, insight that in the business world, I think a lot, a lot of organizations really need to figure out how to harness because that model that you're describing, um, high, you know, of high-performing teams, that that model needs to be adopted because that is not the way right. most organizations are running their teams. Yeah. And, and so I guess if you want to be the most competitive uh, organization out there, then again, the, what we're going to talk about with these attributes. Uh, it's not just the attributes themselves, but the the values that you talk about, like trust. We'll get more into that. I don't want to skip too far ahead, but it's amazing stuff. Um, one other thing, while you were with the SEALs, uh, and it's described in Kotler's book, Stealing Fire, as well, about how you created the Mind Gym. He, and he, he, he talks about taking a tour of the Mind Gym. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's such an intriguing uh, name for you know, a, um, whatever it was, I know what it was, but can you tell, can you talk a little about for our audience, the mind gym, what you did at the mind gym, what it was? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so part of the, part of the, uh, the charter I had when I took over the training, um, job was to, to kind of examine, uh, human performance and, uh, human slash operator performance and resilience. Okay. So how could we, how could we make ourselves and our operators better, faster, stronger? Um, part of that was to explore uh, PTSD in terms of whatever that whatever form that took um, for the Navy SEAL in our cases, right? So because it takes it, it takes different forms depending on the group you're looking at. Okay, Navy SEALs, in fact, uh, PTSD for Navy SEALs shows up a little bit differently for other people, um, just because we're very good compartmentalizers and 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 things like that. So so you have to kind of you have to kind of understand. Um, if it's there. Uh, but the other thing that happens, regardless of whether it's a SEAL team in any kind of um, uh, machismo kind of environments where, where you need to have some machismo in there in the in the mix, right, um, is that is that any type of weakness or vulnerability is typically hidden, right. So, um, so you have to so you have to you have to create a sense and we wanted to create a, a, an environment that allowed guys to work on themselves, especially mentally, in a capacity that enhanced performance rather than was labeled something's wrong with me. Okay. Okay. Um, we felt like, and I say we, because I, you know, I was, I was, the, I was the lead at the time, but I had a, a group of a team who's working with me on this. And so, and so what we felt was, Hey, we are, we're already really good in the gym. <laughs> okay. We're pretty, we're pretty good physically. We know, we know exactly what we need to do running, swimming, lifting weights. You know, we know what that looks like. Each of us has our, has our, uh, our tolerances and we know what we can do. So, so what's the next leap? Okay. The next leap is not, is not benching 
100 more pounds. The next leap is not running a mile a minute faster. Uh, the next leap has to be mental. Okay, so so how do we begin to explore exercising our brain, like creating a relationship with our brain um, so that we can better perform. So we can actually, we can access our own physiology um, faster. We can, we can take charge of the chemicals that run through us and of course through us, both in stress states when our parasymp when our sympathetic system is firing off and get ourselves to parasympathetic states so we can recover faster. How can we do that more effectively, more proactively? Um, and really, so, so we just started throwing a bunch of things against the wall and we started throwing, you know, things like HRV breathing. We had the, the float tanks, you know, we had the, um, uh, we had mental acuity kind of exercises, um, and, uh, and we brought in some mental, uh, mental conditioning coaches. And really the idea was let's just start creating an environment where, um, guys can begin, they have a place, they can begin to start exploring their own brains and and in doing so may also uh find find areas that uh might might need a little bit of repair right so if someone is going through a, a program and they're saying okay i'm training with this and there's something kind of not right in my head then then the, the that that individual now is volunteering to go get that taken care of with a psychologist or whatever because it's in the vein of i want to get better versus i'm broken and I, you know, something's wrong with me. And so that was really the impetus when, when Steven was visiting, we were really kind of at the beginning stages. Um, you know, I've been out for four years and we always say when you get out of the Navy, um, especially the SEAL teams, it's like getting off of a, of a roller coaster that's on fire <laughs> because, um, <laughs> because you get off and suddenly it just goes away, <laughs> you know? And so, right. so I still talk to friends of mine, um, but a lot of my friends are also out. So I don't, I, I don't have a lot of visibility on where they are now, but, um, uh, but the idea was to kind of get into this, mental version of performance versus just the physical. So I, I want to just uh, just uh, pick up on a thread there uh, because I, so the flotation tanks, mm -hmm. those devices are, are from the 60s and they were used in a film called Altered States. It was mm -hmm. part of the plot of a movie called Altered States. I don't know if you ever saw the movie. I have, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, in the movie, that you know, a doctor is um, accessing. Uh, he's he's using the flotation the flotation tank. He's also doing psychedelic drugs to access uh, he, our past. To mm -hmm. access, you know, and he, he starts, you know, devolving into the you know the primitive uh, as we you know go back and uh, you know kind of see this this process of evolution in reverse. And you. Interestingly enough, especially interesting that you didn't see the film. I some in an interview you did, um, someone mentioned, or you know, you mentioned that being in a flotation tank was like aging in reverse. So I don't know if that if that's you know if that's something you said or not, but if it if if it is that what is that concept? What did you find the flotation tank helped with when it came to? Um, you know, healing or rebuilding or, you know, uh, you know, empowering the mind. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I said that, but I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily disagree with it. I think, I think okay. the flotation tank has, has, has effects, uh, different effects on different people. There are some folks who get in that tank and just freak out. They do not like it whatsoever. Um, and okay. for the, for your audience who might not know what a flotation tank also called an isolation, uh, uh, tank, you know, um, an ISO, an ISO pod, right? Isolation okay. pod. Um, the idea is it's a pod, it's filled with water, 
Um, it looks like a big kind of like an eggshell coffin type thing. Uh, it's filled with water that has um, Epsom salt in it. And it's based, it's basically set to the salinity level of say the Dead Sea. So, so you get into this thing and you literally can relax every muscle and float there on top of the water to include your head. You can, you can all, you have no weight. You're completely weightless. The water itself is at about 92, 93 degrees. So it literally feels when you close this thing and it, and, and it kind of, you're in this cocoon, it feels like you're floating in space. Um, okay. Some people get freaked out about that, but, but the idea behind the pod is, is it basically deprives as many senses as you can uh, deprive, right? So they're trying to take away uh, feeling, they're trying to take away smell, they're trying to take away sight. Um, ultimately, the initial um, use of those tanks was in the vein of recovery, okay? Because okay. When, we're, when we're talking about recovery, we're talking about our body is going through stress events, okay, whether they be as stressful as combat or training, or be as stressful as a day uh, in school or a day with your kids, you know, or a day at work, right? Um, we are, we are often consistently in a sympathetic response, okay, when we're in a sympathetic response, our body is creating cortisol, okay, cortisol is necessary for us to react to respond. But the problem with cortisol is it, it also is damaging it, it well, it, it I shouldn't say it's damaging because it's a natural substance, but it, it creates a lot of wear and tear on our systems. Okay, so our, our, our human physiology was designed and our nervous system was designed to shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic, okay, parasympathetic is when our body is in relaxed mode, okay, our bodies begin to recover and relax, and our body shifts from making cortisol to making DHEA, DHEA is the fundamental building block of testosterone, estrogen, all this, all this good stuff, it basically helps rebuild our systems, okay, in, 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 um, in physiological sense, it's, it's basically repairing the wear and tear that the cortisol conducted on our bodies, okay, right. so, so when we are so the so the number one way our bodies do this by the way is sleep okay when we go into deep sleep when we go into normal sleep cycles and normal means you're in stage four sleep so you go one two three to, you know stage you're, you're hovering between stage three and four sleep in REM sleep and otherwise um our bodies are in full repair mode okay our bodies are creating dhea our our brains are are wrapping the neural networks that we learned that day with myelin our bodies in recovery that's what sleep does for us um hard to tell someone who can't sleep to just sleep better. <laughs> okay, the, the what the pod helped guys do was begin to put themselves in an environment where you're almost in a in a you're, you're, you're almost in a sleep state of recovery in terms okay. of your, your sensory deprivation. And there were a lot of guys who, who began using that who weren't sleeping very well, who began using that on a on a weekly basis to two or three times a week, and they started sleeping really well, right? Because because they they were training their bodies to start recovering, training their bodies to kind of do this. So that's what it began as. Um, there are lots of there's so the movies about there. There are lots of people who who try to add the psychedelic type um, thing to it to try to get into some some cool or how they would define as cool ultra states. We never did that. The military is not into um, that type of. Um, uh, uh, use of, of external substances, um, nor should we, you gotta be really careful with that stuff because there's nothing, there's nothing precise about those types of, uh, drugs. You just don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not uh, an advocate nor, uh, or, a, nor, a, someone who detracts from it. I'm just, you know, it's just something the military doesn't do. Um, but the, but the, but the tanks themselves, I thought, and a lot of guys thought were phenomenal in the sense that you could really kind of get into this recovery state and whether you stayed in there for 30 minutes or an hour, I had some friends who were in there for two or three hours. Wow. Um, and, um, and they'd come out and you'd feel refreshed, you'd feel recovered. Um, and so you can also start to add in visualization in there. You can just kind of, you know, you can, you can meditate in there, you can do whatever, but, um, but it's a really fascinating experience. If you haven't tried 
uh, float tank. They're, they're now becoming more predominant around the nation. So I know, you know, the, it's likely that wherever you live, you can probably look up isolation pod or float tank and probably go somewhere where, the, where you could try it out, especially if you're kind of near a bigger city. But, uh, but yeah, we thought it fascinating. We brought it in. It helped a lot of guys. It continues to help guys. Um, and, um, and it's a really, I think it's a powerful tool in especially the recovery mode. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, thanks for, for enlightening there. So, okay, let's dig into the attributes, man. Okay. Um, so, you know, cause, uh, there's, you got 25 of them, uh, but I'm going to quote you from the book. You say, ultimately we actually landed on a list of 36 attributes <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it, it changed the game for us in terms of understanding our process and explaining the results. We could now articulate to ourselves and to candidates what we were looking for and why. Yep. Now, you know, however, um, Rich, you paired, you know, those 36 down to 25 for the book. Um, you know, you, you say... The 25 attributes in this book are the most common and the most applicable to the broadest spectrum of optimal performance. Yes. And you divide them into five categories, grit, mental acuity, drive, leadership, and team ability. So my question is, what happened to the 36? <laughs> and, and was there another, and, and I'm just curious, was there another category or did those extra attributes fall into those those uh, five groups yeah it's a it's probably a little bit of both so so first thing that uh, the the audience needs to realize is that the the list of attributes required for a Navy seal is going to be different than the list of attributes required for say uh, a business person or an HR person or a team of nurses or a sports or an athletic team right so so the list of attributes that, that is, is always going to be subjective so that was one thing I, I couldn't take the 36 attributes and say okay this is this is the list for everybody. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I, as I looked at it, because again, I hadn't looked at this, I had thought about it, but I actually pulled out my old list when I started thinking about the book. And I said, well, some of these, some of these actually are skills. They're more, they're more skills, which will often happen. If you, if you go, if, if anybody takes the time to start mapping out what attributes they think are required for their team, my, my advice is just to, th to throw down every, anything they can think of. Right, whatever it is, right? Put it on a piece of paper or a flip chart or whatever you know medium you're using. But then once you do that, you need to go through that list because it's going to be probably pretty um, uh, uh, assured that you're going to have some skills on there because skills and attributes get conflated on the, all the time, as it did with us. So, so things like so when we did this as a command, we you know we said things like great shot. That's you know that's a skill. That's a limited. Uh, uh, great PT or a PT role. That's a that's a that's a skill, right? Mm. So I had to call out the skills. So some of the 36, I think, were, as I looked at them, were more skills focused. Okay. But then I said to myself, I, I, don't, I never wanted to write a book for or about Navy SEALs. Okay. There's enough SEAL books out there. We can agree to that. And, and certainly you've had a bunch of guests who've, who've been on there. And they're all great. I mean, I, I have nothing uh, bad to say about any of them. Um, but I wanted to write a book that, was, that, that made the reader the hero versus the the seal or the neuroscientist or anything like that. So, so I wanted to say, okay, so I said, okay, what are the, what are the attributes that someone could read this and say, Hey, these I can apply to yes. overall optimal performance in every, in any environment, right? So now you can apply these things to every day, as much as you can apply to the seal, to the, to the athlete, to, to the person who's, who's struggling with cancer and chemotherapy, you can apply the same stuff, right? So, so the idea was to ubiquitize it and make it into, um, some core ones. It's certainly not an exhaustive list, but it's a great start for anybody who's diving into uh, the concept. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it's just interesting, the, the, the five categories, you know, the grit attributes, the mental acuity attributes, the drive attributes, the leadership attributes, the team ability attributes, which is an interesting word. Yeah. Um, but the first four attributes that you cover yep. are the grit attributes. Yes. Which are courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resilience. Yes. So I'm going to quote you. In the SEAL environment, I did I deconstructed grit into four component attributes. No one can make it through buds without fairly high levels of all four. But life also requires all four. Everyone will face terrible challenges, a bad diagnosis, a layoff, an economic downturn, the death of a loved one, a global pandemic like COVID-19. And those with more grit will be better able to push through them. Yet, it's not only in crises that these attributes matter. How so? Well, again, grit. Sometimes we need grit just to get through our day. You know, sometimes we need a little bit. Now, we might need not. We might not need courage every day. Okay, but this is why I had to deconstruct grit because grit. Um, it, you know, a lot of people, to include myself, uh, thought and think grit is one thing. Grit is its own attribute. Okay, but what I realized was. Uh, no, it's actually a combination of things. You know, the, it's a combination of things that makes up grit, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the same things every time. Okay, um, courage is certainly an aspect of grit in many cases, but um, you can have perseverance without courage. I mean, you don't need you know, again courage. The only courage cannot exist in the absence of fear, right? So, so if fear doesn't, if fear is not showing up, then courage is not there. Okay, which means you can persevere in situations where there is no fear. Okay, that is grit as well. You can adapt. In, in, in situations where there is no fear um, and maybe there's no perseverance and that's grit too. That's really grit is about being able to move through and in many cases, take that small step forward um, and, and, and keep going. Um, and then resilience is in there because resilience has to, has to be accounted for because if you can't effectively be resilient, you're going to entropy over time. You know, um, you are going to get weaker and weaker and weaker and you're gonna get think you're not going to be able to grow from this stuff right so so that's why resilience had to be thrown in um but uh but yes life uh, i mean getting through the traffic jam might require some grit <laughs> getting through the argument with a teenager might require some grit you know um you know look just just our, our look at our frontline workers you know for covid um right. they're they are executing grit every single day um, the people with COVID are executing grit every single day. Um, our first responders, our firefighters, our police, um, everybody who's out there doing stuff in service to others, everybody who's, who's just trying to, to get through their day every, every step of the way um, is, in some, is in some ways executing some levels of crit and in my uh, and i would i would i would purport that um at least some levels of of at least a few of these four attributes that make up grit without question um and the courage uh, attribute i found very interesting a point that you make in the book uh about the courage circuit yeah um, can, can you explain the concept of the courage circuit and how the neurotransmitter dopamine plays an important role in making some of us courageous individuals. 
Absolutely. So, so, so this is based on a lot of work that I did with a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's a, he's a neuroscientist and ophthalmologist at, at Stanford University. And he and I met a good four years ago, and we've been working on this idea uh, of optimal performance. In fact, we bonded on this idea. We were, at a, we were, at a, we were actually at a, uh, a conference where we were supposed to help design a peak performance type thing for executives. And uh, that's where we met and we kind of you know, went off to the side and said, eh, neither of us are really into peak performance, we're into optimal. And so we realized, you know, that this is something we want to explore. And so he, so he and I have talked about courage, he runs a lab where he scares people. And I talk about that in the book. Um, courage is, uh, is a combination of two things. Okay. And those two things are anxiety and uncertainty. Okay. You can have those two things singularly, um, and I should, okay, let me back up. It's not courage. Fear is a result of two things. Okay. Anxiety and uncertainty. Okay. You can have, you can have those two things singularly and you don't necessarily have fear. Okay. You can be anxious, but not uncertain, which means, okay, I, I am anxious about the presentation I have to give on Monday morning. I might be anxious about this date. I'm going to go on, you know, that I haven't, you know, and I haven't been on a date for a while. Okay. That's anxious. That's anxiety without uncertainty. Okay. There's no fear there. It's just anxiousness. Okay. Right. You can have uncertainty without anxiety. Okay. That's every kid on Christmas Eve. Okay. Um, or, or if you're opening a present, a birthday present, right? That's, that's right. uncertainty without anxiety. In fact, that's exciting. Okay. When you combine uncertainty and anxiety, that's when fear starts to show up. I'm both anxious and uncertain. Okay. Um, when, when those two things exist, when fear begins to show up, we start to, there starts to be a physiological response. It's an autonomic response. We start to get into our, it comes from our amygdala and we start to go into kind of this fight or flight. Okay, now we're not talking about tipping over into a flight, a fight or flight response without thinking, but our body begins to, our physiology begins to start going, heading that direction. That's the result of fear. It's an internal response, all right? Um, fight and flight are the two things we can decide in that moment. Our body can, can, it can decide un unconsciously if we're completely tipped into a full, full-blown ambigula autonomic response, or more likely we're afraid and we kind of have to decide what to do. Uh, there's also the freeze factor, which people talk about, but freeze is really neurologically, it's a flittering between fight and flight. It's kind of a, it's a, it's an oscillation between the two where you can't really decide which one to do. Okay. Um, if you choose to either fight or flee, okay, and then fight means move into the courage. It doesn't mean necessarily put up your dukes and and, <laughs> and, and beat someone up, all right? It's moved into the fear. If you decide to do either one, a separate switch in the, plane, in the brain fires off, okay? When you decide to fight, when you decide to step into your fear, there's a switch in the brain that clicks on, okay? That's called the courage switch, or at least certainly something uh, Andrew Huberman talks about being the, 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 courage, the courage circuit, okay? As soon as you do that, as soon as, you, as, soon as that switch flips in your brain, mm -hmm. you are rewarded with dopamine. Your, your, uh, the neurotransmitter, dopamine is, a, is one of the most powerful uh, chemicals on the planet. It's a neurotransmitter, okay? It tells us that something is pleasurable. So it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily pleasurable, but it tells us, hey, that is pleasurable. That feels good, okay? This is why the addictive substances, whether it be smoking or drugs or alcohol or even eating or gambling um, are, are, are such dopamine um, heavy activities. But right. it's, not, it's not that those activities are giving us um, uh, it's, it's when, the, when we do those activities, it's releasing dopamine. That's telling us, Hey, this is good. Keep doing it. That's why we keep doing it. Okay. Same thing happens when we step into fear, when we step into fear, we're given a dopamine hit, which means, Hey, this is good. Keep going. Now this is design. This is by design as humans, as we evolved, um, 
nature needed to provide human beings a way to explore and discover and keep moving forward and survive, right? Um, so it had, to, it had to generate a reward system that allowed us to keep on going, right? So I talk about a, a kind of a fictional um, group of explorers in, in prehistoric earth, right, that, that, that are going to find new, new territory in which they can find food and, and, and drink and water. And those, our ancestors had to be courageous enough to step into the unknown, right? When we step into the unknown, our body says, yes, this is good, keep going. This doesn't necessarily mean that we reached our objective, okay? Reaching our objective actually is a whole nother thing and it gives us dopamine, yes, but, but it's by design to help us keep taking steps. So every step we make into our fear gives us a dopamine hit, right? This is what the fear, this is what the, this is what courage is. Courage, the courage circuit is the idea, is the act of us stepping into our fear, engaging that circuit and getting that dopamine response. Um, so what does this tell us? What, what it tells us a couple things. First, it tells us that courage cannot exist without fear being there first, right? If there is no fear, there is no courage, okay? Um, so yet, so fear has to exist. And the other thing that tells us is that we have to understand that, that um, courage, as you, as you do it, um, uh, as you do it more and more, it actually can be somewhat addictive, right? This is why you see guys who are, I'll use the, I'll use the skydiver who turns into a, a base jumper who turns into a wingsuit or like a constantly pushing the envelope. Right. But again, this is evolutionary design and we were designed as humans to push the envelope. I mean, this is exactly what made us from cave dwellers to space explorers. We've, we've, we've designed, we've been designed as a species to continue to press our boundaries and press our, press our, um, our edges and walk to our edges that takes courage. And that takes the courage circuit. And so, so courage as an attribute exists to the extent that some of us are wired um, in a, in a way that allows us to do that a little bit easier, more easily. And some of right. us are wired in ways that allows us to do that less easily. But the good news is all, every one of us can develop it, can practice it because we just, the problem is it, it takes us, it takes a deliberate launch into uncertainty and challenge and stress. Right. Um, right. but if you're willing to do that, this is why it grows. And again, growth comes from, we, this is a, this is a meme that we've heard so many times that it might get sickening to hear, but it's, 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 it's repetitive because it's true. Um, we grow through challenge. We grow through strife. I mean, look, we go to the gym to lift weights. Uh, when we lift a weight, we are literally ripping our muscles. Okay. Um, and the growth comes when we're resting and our muscles are rebuilding and growing, but we have to rip our muscles to grow them. Right. Same goes in life. I mean, you know, growth and, and evolution is a, um, is a challenging process and it takes challenge and strife. So, you know, it's so interesting that as you, you know, you mentioned that, this comes, e you know, uh, the courage circuit, you know, that comes easier to some of us who take the leap uh, into the unknown uh, and then get the dopamine hit versus those that it's harder to do that. It's interesting that as humans, you know, or maybe maybe for those it's easier, they get a sense somehow there's a sense that there is a dopamine hit coming if they do it, even when they haven't ever done it yet. Yeah. But maybe for those that are find it more challenging or, you know, succumb to their fear, maybe they don't have that sense that there's a dopamine hit coming. Right. But I, I would I would offer that any one of anybody who's listening to this podcast, anybody who's listening to the podcast and knows anybody else, almost every human being on the planet has at one point stepped into fear yes. and felt and, and felt how good that felt after successfully doing it. OK, that good feeling, that's dopamine. 
All right. So we've all we all can probably harken back to a time we've done it and oh, felt yeah. how good it was to do it. Um, the, the trick is if you do want to develop it, you just need to do more consistently. Um, and the caveat to that, because there has to there always has to be one, <laughs> is that um, is that uncertainty has to exist for uh, for fear to be there. So, for example, um, you know, I, I talk about the book. I, I, I'm not a big fan of heights. Right. So skydiving was always a challenge for me. OK. Um, but the more uh, so I had to step into my fear every time I ju uh, jumped out of an airplane. Um, but the more I jumped out of an airplane, the more used to jumping out of an airplane I got. So after a while, I the fear was gone. Right. Uh, the fear left me. OK. Which meant courage left me, too. OK, because I didn't need courage to, to jump out of the airplane anymore. OK, so so to practice courage uh, will take a consistency in stepping outside one's comfort zone, but then also changing contexts in, time, in terms mm -hmm. of what they do. If um, if you are someone who is uh, who is uh, afraid of um, or, or it makes you it makes you afraid to or maybe you're afraid of heights. OK, step into heights, but you're gonna have to step into different types of heights. And then maybe you might want to, if you want to practice, get used to heights and well, now I'm not really good at public speaking. Okay, well, now you're gonna have to go do public speaking, do something else that induces that, that fear to, to continue, you have to, to practice courage, there must be fear, right? Right? Yeah. And, and yeah, I like that, because, you know, you can practice in different ways. And, you know, you start strengthening that circuit allows you to push into, you know, harder and harder challenges that you were probably more totally. Afraid. Yeah, and that's by design. We're supposed to evolve. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, okay, the next group of attributes are the mental acuity attributes. Yeah. Situational awareness, compartmentalization, task switching, mm -hmm. and learnability. So, all right, um, let me quote you here. Most people believe that they can multitask. Most people, in fact, believe they're very good at it. In one famous study from the University of Utah, a statistically absurd but remarkably confident 70% of participants thought they were above average in their ability to do multiple things at once. They weren't, <laughs> and you aren't either. <laughs> so what is task switching, and why is multitasking a myth? Because my wife swears that she's an incredible multitasker, and if you ask me, I would say, yeah, she can do it. I can't. But it, it's a myth. She's not. No one is. Right. <laughs> what is well, I, I do talk about the, the, the I think it was 2% of super taskers that actually do get they actually can get better at tasks as they move on. But here's the here's the neurology of it um, is that we can't our brains can't consciously focus on anything more than one thing. There's a there's some neurology and I'm not going to get into it that says maybe you can be aware of something else, um, but okay. but you can't. But that's I think that that gets into some some more deep neurology. Now, where this doesn't count, okay, when where your wife is likely right, um, is that uh, is for un, uh, is for activities that we do unconsciously. So, for example, you and I can very effectively drive a car and listen to a podcast. Okay, that seems like multitasking, but it's really not because we are doing uh, if we're listening to the podcast. The driving part is automatic. We're not we're not thinking about our driving. So so if, if we've if we've been able to relegate tasks to unconscious competence, right? We can do it without thinking. Um, it feels sometimes like we can multitask. But to give you an example, if I'm driving or, or driving and I'm listening to if I'm listening to the Alpha Human podcast while I'm driving um, and I'm listening to you talk to a guest, I'm like, man, this is awesome, right? And then suddenly someone cuts me off, okay? 
and I have to and I have to suddenly like turn the steering wheel brake or whatever. All right. It is inevitable that after that 10, 15, 20 seconds passes, I'm going to have to rewind the part I just missed on the podcast. Right. Because my brain just switched from listening to the podcast to just addressing the threat. Okay. Task switching is just that. We do this all the time neurologically. Task switching is the ability to to hop between um, tasks and contexts um, that aren't related. Um, Sometimes this happens within one context. So for example, driving a car, um, driving a car, you're actually task switching inside of a context, right? One moment you're you're focusing on steering, the the next moment you might be focusing on the brake, maybe the next one in the blinker. Some of it's also relegated to unconscious competence, right? So, So that happens too, but that's task switching inside a context. As soon as you park that car, though, and you get you, you walk out in the parking lot of the grocery store, now you're walking in the parking lot. You've just jumped contexts. Okay, now you're in parking lot context. Okay, um, now you're you're looking at cars coming. You're looking at people going in. Then you go go into the grocery store, and you've just t- jumped t- context again. Now you're in grocery store context. Okay, our brain is making those neurological leaps every time. So this is task switching. Um, Oftentimes, we are forcing ourselves to task switch when we shouldn't be, okay? Our, our cellular phones, for example, um, are, are a collection of thousands of different contexts, okay? Instagram, Facebook, um, uh, the text stream, whatever it is, okay? Um, and so often, um, we bite, we're, you, you and I might be in the middle of a conversation, and if I, if I allowed it, you know, my, my phone is on the table, and suddenly it bings, right? Well, my brain just hopped, okay? That context, it's, it's, it's neurologically, it's, it's, it's like jumping from a, a library to a soccer field, right? You know, my brain has to, has to make that, that leap. So I'm, I'm, I've just forced my brain to task switch when it shouldn't have, all right? Task switching as, as an attribute comes with people who are, who are more, uh, more able to effectively hop between contexts um, and still maintain uh, their their focus on what they need to focus on. So so uh, so for example, if you if someone so, so you know perfect example is my uh, my younger son. My younger son he's a he's a really deep thinker. And so when he gets into something, you know he's he's very deep focused. I can call his name five times and he won't hear me. And it's not because he's not listening. Uh, it's not because he it's not because he actually is just not he doesn't want to answer me. It's because focused, it's hard for him to hop out, right? Um, so some people who are, uh, if you find yourself as someone who when you dive into something, when you start a, a task, if you get knocked out of that task, it's hard for you to focus in on what you just get knocked to and then hard for you to focus out, you may be a little bit less on task switching. Um, if you're someone who hops contexts very easily, uh, then you may be actually pretty good at task switching. Although the, 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 um, the, the far uh, the far uh, right of that would be someone who's who task switched too much, right? So some of the, some people who have ADHD, for example, tip to too much task switching. So they're 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 hopping so fast, they're actually it's too fast, right? They're not they're never able to focus on anything, right? So so there's a happy medium. Um, and again, no no one thing, no one number or what, no one position is necessary. It depends on what you want for your life. Um, my buddy Andrew Huberman is a self-admitted someone uh, who who he dives deep, and it's hard for him to to hop out. Well, guess what? That is a perfect perfect to attribute or level of the attribute to have when you're when you're a scientist studying data, right? You need to be able to dive in. You need to be able to kind of focus in on stuff and not have distractions, right? For a Navy SEAL, not so much. I need to be able to focus in, but I also need to be aware of my surroundings. Uh, so I need to be able to hop out. So so it doesn't, so having more or less is not necessarily a, a, a good or bad thing, right? I, and I think the point of all of this, by the way, it, we should probably state is that as we're going through some of these attributes, 
the point isn't whether or not you have them or you don't. Um, we, you talk about how we all have them to a varying degree. That's right. The key here is that just understanding what these identifying what these attributes are allows allows one to better maybe understand what what their top attributes are and then perhaps make a match with the type of things that they'll be great at or the roles that they could be doing and for those that are looking to build teams hey it's not just the skills far from it these are the of the 25 i need these eight attributes that's exactly right that's the key i think that's the key that's the key we could all yeah we all show up with a with a certain palette of of attributes and so it's up to us okay how do i show up um how can that best fit what i'm doing and if you are interested in developing certain ones just know that if you're a little bit lower on the scale um you can develop an attribute it just you can't do it the same way you learn a skill okay i can't sit down and teach you patience okay you can't i can't teach a class on how to be more patient you have to you have to decide say okay i i want i'm deciding i want to be more patient i'm deciding i want to be more empathetic i'm deciding i want to be more adaptable right and then it has to it takes self direction and it takes one's willingness to throw themselves into situations that test that and allow them to proactively develop it very interesting yeah. um okay so mental acuity you talk about the most important of the mental acuity attributes is learnability yeah so what does learnability mean because look, we all have the capacity to learn. Yeah. You know, it, it, you know, some might be better at learning languages. Some might be better at learning music, et cetera, et cetera. But learnability as an attribute, how do you define it? And why is it the most important of the mental acuity traits? Yeah. Well, and I'll take it one step further. We all, we all do learn. I mean, if we, if we're not learning creatures, uh, we are not, uh, we are not effective in, in the world. Right. So we all do learn, uh, learnability is your, um, your ability to process, absorb and apply those things, those lessons of your environment effectively in your current state. Right. Some of us are faster than others. And admittedly, learnability is probably my lowest one on all three. I mean, I, it takes me, so what does that mean? It, it takes me a while to pick things up. We so we all know people, and they just they're people who just, they try something once and they got it right. It's just like right. they are they are you, you tell them something once and they got it right. These people are high on the learnability scale. They they are able to process this information, absorb it, and 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 then and then use it very rapidly. Right. Some of us aren't that fast. Right. I it takes me a little while. It takes me it takes me rep, uh, repetition. Okay. Um, Again, nothing wrong with it. You just have to understand that about ourselves, right? So I know when I'm going to learn something, I know, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna need a little bit more time to repeat, to absorb, to try to get that to to embody it in my system. I might make the same mistake a couple times before I actually learn. Whereas some people high on learn, learnability, they never make the same mistake twice, right? They just don't. They're just high on that on that attribute. Um, it is the most important because if you don't have it, nothing else really matters. Yeah, I, that makes sense, uh, and. Uh... You know that ability to process that quickly and and learn it and apply it. Uh, you know, again, it's it's amazing when I hear. I love when I hear, and I think it's it. You know, you, you talk about being uh, vulnerable enough to not uh, be. Uh, you know, to present yourself as a superhero or someone who's untouchable, uh, because I love hearing about someone who's accomplished as much as you've accomplished, still sitting there saying, you know, I'm, I'm horrible at learnability because we're like, what? How's that? Why he's written this book, the 25 attributes. But again, this makes it all um, empowering for, for people who think that they're average 
to realize that actually you could do superhuman things. Yes. Um, and I will say this, we, we, we are all average. We, it's just our ability to apply ourselves and what we bring to the table to make us above average, right? But we all start out the same, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so we just have to work on how to apply it. Amazing. Um, okay, the drive attributes, uh, self-efficacy, yeah. discipline, open-mindedness, cunning, and narcissism. <laughs> I love those last two. Yeah. Um, that, but, but, but what's interesting is that none of those explain what drive is. Um, <laughs> Not really. Right. No. Like if you told me, okay, it, you have self-efficacy, discipline, open-minded, cunning, and narcissism. What do you have? Be like, you know, you'd be like, I don't know. Okay. So how do you define drive? Yeah, well, drive is really a verb, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 uh it's what um it's what we do. Um, it's it's kind of it's this ability to to move th move towards a long term goal o overall, right? But not just a long term goal, but to be able to, I think, um, imagine and uh, and then and then create uh, and then achieve. Uh, I mean, I think I think human beings are human beings because we all have at least elements of drive. We all have this ability to imagine that which that which does not exist and bring it into existence. And I think um, I think those those folks with with high levels of these attributes uh, tend to do that more effectively than other folks. Um, so I look at people, and again, this is a little bit different than grit. Grit is really more about the short term, right? But okay. but drive is about the really long term. So you look at very highly successful people, um, and and it's 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 pretty obvious that very highly successful people have um, a lot of uh, a combination or at least a good combination of these attributes. Well, um, so, you know, we talk about what's really um, uh, fascinating in the book, you know, you talk about the source of that drive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. You've got the attributes. Um, but like, what's, you know, what's, what's the source of bringing it to, to, to the fore. Yeah. Um, and you say in the book, I'll quote you here, things like money, reward, and punishment hold little value when compared to what Daniel H. Pink author of drive uh, labels as the three elements of true motivation, which are autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Yeah. Now it, it appears that it, Okay, so here's my so that's your quote from the book. It, it appears to me that initially, when we as humans set out into the world, before we truly understand ourselves, uh, before we kind of get who we are as individuals, that we are all initially driven by the first three things that yeah. are mentioned there, right? Money, reward, and punishment. Uh, and for many, by the way, I don't think that ever changes. But for most, um, mo the, 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 the money reward punishment, uh, formula does lose their significance. Mm -hmm. Uh, yet I think the few that seem to be able to access that deeper level of drive that you mentioned there, those, those few, very, very, you know, the 1% of the hot of the most successful people, um, have discovered maybe I shouldn't say the 1%, but those that are successful. They seem to have discovered what their purpose in life is. Yeah. Is that 
is, is, is this level of awareness, understanding who you are and what your purpose is essential to leveraging the drive attributes? Uh, I would say yes and no. I mean, again, what, what Daniel Pink doesn't, what, what, he, what, he, what he makes sure he doesn't say uh, is that money <clears throat> and success and things like that aren't drivers because they are. Right. And I would I would actually say that um, that your uh, our our environment probably has a lot to do with how much uh, you have the extra the extrinsic versus intrinsic driving factors. But but listen, I mean, someone who's growing up in poverty right. um, is going to be motivated by money. Right. They are because that because they're like, hey, I want to I want to do better. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I would offer. I would actually, I guess I would, I would hypothesize that, um, that some of these folks who have achieved this massive success financially or whatever, or otherwise have now the ability to reframe their driving factors in a more maybe altruistic, uh, uh, or, okay. or even, um, uh, uh, just, uh, humanistic kind of kind of thing. Um, but let's just think of think of most of us who just live kind of normal lives, okay, because of the society we're in because of the time frame in civilization that we're in, we are all in a place where we don't have to hunt for our own food. Um, we we kind of we kind of we don't have to worry about uh, getting killed when we uh, when we, you know, walk out the door by by other tribes, as long as say we're in the US or any, you know, maybe, uh, you know, kind of more civilized, uh, country. Um, but we don't have to worry about some of those very survival things that that the early humans or even some humans right right now have to worry about, right. And therefore, we get to think about goals that are beyond ourselves, think about goals that are beyond food, water, shelter, okay. okay. Um, and I would offer that yes, in terms of those goals that are beyond food, water, shelter, um, these drive attributes are uh, very effective in allowing us to kind of pursue and achieve those um, because okay. they, they they are they are kind of crucial in that in that pursuit. If we don't have and I talk about it, you need you need probably at least two or more of these attributes to effectively be driven. Um, because if you don't, if you only have just one, it's fair, it's quite inert, you know, or in kind of the case of narcissism, dangerous. <laughs> so, um, right. yeah, so you have to, so I think, I think all those take, get taken into account. Okay. Yes. You know, fair enough. Uh, that, uh, that completely makes sense. Um, and then, so if you're going for those extrinsic goals and, and you are able to leverage as I think most people are able to leverage at least two of those attributes um, that you've mentioned. Um, but one of them, very interesting what you, what you talk about discipline, yeah. discipline as an attribute, because you make a powerful distinction and that is the difference between self-discipline and discipline. So like in, in Jocko Willink's book, discipline equals free, uh, freedom. Yeah. We get the sense of how another Navy SEAL, right? Um, yes. we get the sense of how powerful a force discipline can be in our life. But he's most Jocko's mostly referring to the power of self-discipline. And after reading your book, uh, and particularly the chapter, The Self-Disciplined Loser, great title for that chapter, <laughs> The Self-Disciplined Loser, I, I gained a whole new perspective on the concept of discipline and how yeah. it differs from self-discipline. So uh, a quote from you is, self-discipline can keep you focused on and even help you achieve external goals. But it's not required, and sometimes it's not even relevant. Right. So this is this is very interesting. Can you explain the difference between discipline and self-discipline, and why it is discipline 
that is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And and I and it's a, it was a fun for fun chapter for me to write, and I've thought even more upon it even after writing it. Um, okay. Um, because it's just a cool concept. Here's the, here's how I break it down in the most simplistic way: is that self discipline are those uh, are those things that you can affect and control that the external world has no say in. Okay, so so for example, you or me can decide to uh, lose ten pounds and be able to bench three hundred pounds and run the mile in 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 uh, six minutes. Okay, and we're going to say we're going to do that. We're going to give ourselves the next three months to do that. Okay. okay. Um, nothing about the external world is going to affect our ability to do that. It's all self-discipline. Okay. Um, okay. Certainly we could say, well, I, I was traveling, right? And, and But that's not the external world. You can decide when you're traveling to go still train. You can decide when you're at the buffet line to have the healthy meal, right? That is self-discipline. Self-discipline are those things that you can control and you can be disciplined about that the external world has no say in. All right. Um, yeah discipline overall, the discipline I talk about is the discipline of achieving those long-term goals that the external world has a say in, okay? Becoming a Navy SEAL, becoming a rock star, be, uh, having a successful podcast, okay? All these things are things that the external world has a say in, which mm. means you need to be disciplined in the sense that you need to understand the wickets involved in getting to that goal. You need to understand that there's adaptability involved and because because no, nothing is going to go the, the, the way you planned it, right? Things are, the plan is going to go out the window, um, which means you're going to have to adjust, okay? The, the, when I talk about the self-disciplined loser, I talk about, again, let's just, let me just level, let me just make sure I say, being self-disciplined is not a bad thing, okay? In right. fact, if you're, if you're self-disciplined and disciplined, you are a rock star. I think this is why Jocko is so successful. He is a rock star because he's both self-disciplined and disciplined. He's, he combines the two very effectively. However, Someone who is extraordinarily self-disciplined um, often is that way because they like certainty, okay? Because self-discipline implies and requires certainty. I know exactly, so just take the, the very easy physical example, okay? I can be a, a physical Adonis because I know exactly what meals I need to eat at what times, I know when I'm gonna eat it, how much I'm gonna eat it, I know when I'm gonna work out, and I have a schedule and a routine that allows me to do that. Those people often have trouble when the plan doesn't go the way they want the plan to go, okay? Well, well long-term goals, the plan's never gonna go the way you want to go. So this is where self-discipline can become a hindrance to overall discipline, because overall discipline requires that you not get um, crushed by the lows during, a, during a, uh, a climb and you not get seduced by the highs, right? So even those small wins, you have to say, okay, great, got the win, but I know where I'm going still. Okay, there's still play, there's still work to be done. Uh, our the perfect example of this would be we can learn a lot by rock, from rock climbers. Okay, uh, yeah. rock climber, the rock climber who wants to get to the top of that cliff face. Okay, yes, the top of the cliff face is the goal, but as that rock climber starts the ascent, okay, that rock climber is constantly looking for the right footballs, footholes. Right. Um, well, sometimes the right foothole is going to be down, and over to the side. Right. It's not always in the direction of the goal. Right? right. And so discipline means, hey, I understand that I'm going to have to I'm going to have to go on a path. The path might look like sometimes it's taking me away from the goal, but I know that the path is actually I'm doing that to actually ultimately get to the to the to the long term goal. So this is the difference between long term kind of discipline overarching and then the self and then self discipline. So, although I will say this, those who feel like they don't have any of it <laughs> can <laughs> practice can okay. practice with self-discipline. Okay. Self-discipline is a great way to practice. Um, because it's gotcha. a, it's a good, it's a great first step because the external world has no, has no say in it. All right. So, so if those want to, so, so people can practice with self-discipline, just know that self-discipline is different than overall discipline. Gotcha.
Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's brilliant. And, uh, you know, th this is, it, it, it really is amazing the level, because I, I haven't even gotten into, uh, and nor do we have the time. That's why people have to get your book because you break down in the book, there are numerous attributes within the groups that you break down, <laughs> like perseverance, you break down into like three other. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> dense. I will say it's dense. <laughs> it's, yeah, so I mean, it's it's really cool. The, th the thought that you have put into each one of these attributes, um, this wasn't just you pulling out of a hat, um, you know, here's the, here are the attributes. There, there's so much thought that has gone into each one of these things to the point where you're really teasing out all of the variables uh, in these qualities and traits, uh, these attributes that make up optimal performance, which is why it's it's really so important for anyone who's out there. They got to get this book because it really will enlighten around the types of things that you might want to select for if you're building a team. You know, if you yourself want to, of course, of course, uh, enhance and evolve your own abilities. But the leadership attributes. Yes. These are these are five attributes that um, are just uh, absolutely, uh, you know, if you ask someone, what are the five, <laughs> what are the, the five leadership attributes? I'm not sure. I, I think to, I'm not sure uh, people that would have come up with all of these. They would have assumed some of them. So like decisiveness is one of them that you've uh, that you've uh, uh, tagged and accountability. Mm -hmm. So I think there are people who would have gotten that um, empathy. Self selflessness, uh, authenticity. So it's 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 powerful that the five that you have picked. Uh, and and before we get into just some of them, uh, wanted to ask about an interest your you know this interesting perspective you have on leadership because you say that other people decide right. whether you're right. You you say that because because you know most most a lot of leaders are self appointed. I started a company. I'm the leader. Right. I'm going to hire you. I'm your leader. Right. Uh, people volunteer to be the leader. Um, you know, other people decide whether you're a leader and whether they will follow is what you say. Can you elaborate right. on that concept? Yeah. And it's it's really ultimately the difference between being in charge and being a leader. Yes, you are. You are in charge of your company. OK, whether or not you are the leader is based on whether or not someone else decides that they look at you as a leader, okay? And this is where uh, the military, uh, you learn this in the military. As a military officer, you know, I was I was commissioned as an officer. I, was, I spent my entire career as an officer in the Navy. Um, I was always in charge of something, but that's all it was. Uh, it was the other, it was the people who were in my span of care who decided whether or not I was the leader, right? If I, if they looked at me as a leader and that's based on behaviors and so so the leadership list was interesting for me because i've now been in the leadership um world since retiring and one of the things that we uh did with the with the chapman and co company as we taught these classes and gave these talks was we we usually had a poll and we we'd ask the audience okay what do great leaders do and we just make a list of everything that they said you know and it usually be a list of like 20 or 30 things um, and it was it was a mix between behaviors and, and attributes. To be honest with you, it was th you know things like listening. Always someone always say that well, leader, great leaders listen. Well, listening is a behavior. It's a, it's a it's a behavior, but it's also a skill. I can teach you how to listen better. I mean, I can teach you how to empathetically listen better. Um, but a lot of them were attributes. Accountability. You can't necessarily teach accountability. You can't necessarily teach empathy. Um, and so, right. so this so the leadership attributes comes with a caveat that says, okay, first of all. Um, 
whether or not you are a leader is decided by others. Okay. Um, however, if you are interested in being deemed a leader by other people and want to behave in a way that allows you to be to, to that to happen, these are some of the attributes that you should think about. Because uh, in my experience, as I've looked at this, uh, people leaders with these attributes are leaders who are who people who who have who have um, been designated leaders pretty much have a lot of these attributes, which is why that list uh, became the way it, way it is. So decisiveness is a, a valuable attribute. Um, being decisive illuminates other attributes, right? Uh, courage, yeah. discipline, awareness that reinforce uh, confidence. So, you know, this is something you point out in the book. But what is the, distinct, the distinction between decisiveness and decision-making? Because being a good decision maker can actually be better than being decisive, especially if your decision, especially if your decisions lead to poor outcomes, right? Kind of. Um, I would say that you know the 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 difference in being a good decision maker and decisiveness is uh, speed and efficiency. Um, because okay. um, as I've really experienced and as I've kind of talked to people um, who who think about and consider others leaders, great leaders. Um, the, the, the person in charge who makes long protracted decisions or, or waffles between decisions right. isn't really, people don't have a lot of faith and confidence in that person. Right. Very um, true. but, but when you're decisive, so it means a couple of things, first of all, efficiency, that means that you are able to effectively, um, look at the information, the incoming information, uh, to the extent that you need to, okay, this is the 80, 20 rule. You're never going to get all of it. So, so look at as much as you can. And that is relevant. So you're not going too you're not you're not going too little. You're not making a reckless decision, but you're going. You're not. You're also not taking too much time and trying to figure out information that that may not exist or may come for a while. So there's there's a there's an efficiency in information collection. But then there's the courage to actually make the decision. Um, and 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 decisiveness and making a decision means that it's it's um, uh, it's final but not permanent. Okay. So when I make a decision, it's final. Right. This is what we're doing. This is the direction right. we're heading. But I'm also accountable and I'm also open minded and I'm also humble enough to understand that the, the direction we just decided to go may be the wrong direction. So as we're assessing, as we as we move down that that decision, that pathway, we're constantly assessing and I'm willing to say at any moment, hey, wait a second, that was wrong. Gotcha. <laughs> we need to we need to change. Right. Um, people tend to have way more confidence and faith in leaders that actually do that versus leaders that take too long to even do anything, right? Because doing nothing is probably the worst thing you do. Now, we also don't want to conflate doing nothing uh, or uh, doing doing nothing with not making it. It's really not making a decision. People don't make a decision because the decision might be to do nothing, okay? But that's still a decision, right? right? And so, uh, and so, so as long as you're making a decision and you're moving out on it. Uh, and then you are taking accountability, you're adaptable, you're open-minded, and you're saying, okay, uh, that was the, that was that decision was final, but not permanent, and I'm going to adjust if I need to, or we're just going to move down and, and, and be successful. That's the, those are the types of people uh, people really have a lot of confidence as, in as leaders. See, that's really important. And that, that you know, so for me being devil's advocate and, and, and pushing on the fact that, hey, isn't it better to be a, a, you know, a good decision maker as opposed to being decisive? You know, the, the truth is, that's what you just said is absolutely key. If you're going to be a leader, if you don't have the ability to be decisive, yeah. uh, but then of course you back it up with those other pieces that you've just mentioned. That's right. You've got to have right. that, you know, you've got to be open-minded enough and adaptable enough. And, you know, you might, you have to have the humility, you know, enough to say, wait a second, this is, you know, 
we need to change course here. Yeah. So and and oh, by the way, decision making itself is a skill. It can be taught. You know, you and I can go to a class on making on how to make better decisions, right? So, right. so, uh, so you have to figure out what the what the decisiveness, however, is an attribute. See, that's there. You go. See, there. You, that's the key. You're right because you know I'm thinking decision maker as an attribute. It's not. It's it's a skill. And you do. You know, you mentioned that earlier in the interview and in the book. You talk about, you know, um, assess yourself. Come up with your attributes. List them. You're going to find a lot of them that you think are attributes or skills. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because you're right. If you get the, if you get, if you figure out the attributes, the beauty is you can teach the skills. Totally. Totally. You can't teach yeah. The attributes. I love it. Okay. Especially if you're high on learnability. <laughs> you can learn any skill you want. There you go. Um, all right. The teamability attributes. The, yes. The, the, the final, the final uh, category here. What's interesting about the four teamability attributes, integrity, conscientiousness, humility, and humor, is that they all inform behaviors that encourage trust. The most important factor in assessing whether someone is a good teammate or a good leader, the one underlying the others, uh, but often unspoken, this is you, by the way, I'm quoting you here. Mm -hmm. um, the most important factor in assessing whether someone is a good teammate uh, or a good leader, the one underlying the others, but often unspoken and unexamined is trust. Yes. When teams fail, you say, that is when they are unable to remain together as a team, it is almost always because of a lack of trust on some level. Mm -hmm. So can you explain this? Because trust, this value, you call it a value in the book, trust, uh, continues to appear again and again to be the key to be a key in a lot of areas but certainly both to great leadership and to being a great teammate yeah yeah um well i'll take it one step further i think trust is so we all we often think of trust as a feeling um i feel like i trust this person i feel like i trust right. this thing uh, but a feeling by definition is simply a human emotion right so we know it has to be more than that and so when we examined this when i was with the uh, chapman and co institute we said well you know what um trust is actually a belief a belief is a feeling, is a human emotion that's been rationalized or justified by that human being. Doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. It just okay. matters that it just matters that it has, right? And so, so trust becomes a belief. So, what does that tell us? That tells us that um, you can't make anybody trust you. Okay, you just can't. It's impossible. Free will prevents that. Okay, all you can do is behave in a way that allows someone to make the decision to trust you, to to form a belief of trust about you. Okay, so trust becomes. Um, uh, incumbent on behavior, right? The only way that I can, that I can allow you, the only way I can get you to trust me is to behave in a way that allows you to make a decision to trust me, right? So if that's the case, then it becomes about behaviors, just like leadership is about behaviors, right? So, so, so those, these attributes basically are attributes that, that, uh, express behaviors that lead to trust. Uh, that lead to someone making a decision. So if we have these attributes, if we're if we're higher on these attributes, it's okay. likely that we're going to behave in a way that allows people to trust us. I see. So okay. So maybe I got it wrong. Is trust? So trust is a belief. Is it is it trustworthiness that's a value? Trustworthiness. Yes, I would I would actually say that. Yeah, trustworthiness is a value. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I value it's something. Yeah, I would agree with that. And then you become trustworthy if you have these particular attributes that enabled you to behave in a certain way. Yes. And again, decided by others, <laughs> right? Decided by others. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I so, don't get to say, I don't get to say I'm trustworthy, right? Okay. I, only someone else can say that about me. So, yeah. 
So I'm, I, you know what? This is going to cause me to jump back just for. Um, and by the way, you've been very kind with your time. I've just got a couple more questions for oh, you. Oh, of course, this is fun. Of course. Uh, so, all right. So, speaking about that, um, you know, I'm going to jump back to leadership for a moment because among all of the leadership attributes, authenticity is, you say, is the most important for building trust. Yes. yes. Authenticity, by definition, can't be faked, you say. Right. It, it, can't, it can't be copied. So how does someone become authentic? Well, I mean, I, I, I think someone someone has to be authentic, right? Is that, you know, authenticity is just, are you who you are? You know, I mean, are you are you the same person? But, but what if who you are, but what if who you are isn't, you know, isn't up to snuff? What if who you are isn't right for the role? What if who you are is not even who you want to be? Well, so if, if who you are isn't who you want to be, that's one thing. Then, then that's your job to decide what that is. However, I would say it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough, I think, um, it's a tough judgment to say uh, not, uh, you know, if who you are isn't up to snuff. I mean, okay. you know, we are, we know this. Just think about the people in our lives who we trust implicitly, okay? okay. Um, if we think about, such, okay, just take one person. Just picture, I would, I would encourage your audience to do this. Picture someone in your mind right now that you trust implicitly, okay? Um, that person is authentic, okay? That person has good and bad, all right? That person comes in different sizes, flavors, whatever. That person has good days and bad days, and we trust them because they are who they are no matter what. So we trust them, uh, they are who they are in their good days, their bad days, uh, and so it goes for leaders. Um, and and as a leader, and I, what I say as I make the distinction, it doesn't mean you have to be nice. You know, I had I tell a story in the book about a commanding officer that I met right at the change of command ceremony. Yes, you do. This guy, yeah, this guy, I met him and I mean, with, you know, shook his hand. It was a cold kind of mean, grumpy handshake. And, and within 10 seconds, he was grilling me on some, some gear that had been sitting on the shelves. And I was giving him some kind of canned answers that some other guys had given me. And he wasn't buying. He was grumpy and he was kind of like, I, you know, he was mad and all that. And I walked away from that two minute conversation being like, oh my God, this is going to be an awful two years, you know, um, until I realized, you know, a few weeks later that this guy was like that with everybody. It, he was like that with enlisted people. He was like that with officers. He was like that with senior officers. He was like that whether he was at the chow hall in his office or a PT. He was always the same, which meant I could trust him. I trusted his authentic grumpiness. I trusted his authentic asking the tough questions. And I knew exactly what to expect. And he turned out to be a phenomenal leader. And I, I consider him a leader to this day. And he made me a better officer because of it. Um, and he was always grumpy, <laughs> you know? Um, so it doesn't mean you have to be nice. It, it's really, authenticity is one of those things that um, is really easy to see from others, uh, by others, because others, other people can see if you are the same person. And I would say, as, as if, we're, if we're trying to examine ourselves, uh, if we are a different person, if we are, tr I mean, there's certain little caveats here, but if we are ostensibly a different person at work than we are at home, Yes. And one of those places we're lying, okay? Um, and so we have to figure out which one is which because whatever that authentic person is, um, that's what's going to embody someone to then consider, oh, actually, I trust this person. And it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, roses and, and unicorns, right? You know what? Th that is so well said because the reality is you don't have to like someone to trust them. That's right. And I can only imagine, you know, how interesting it must be uh, doing what you were doing, selecting for things like authenticity, um, yeah. and to to be able to 
I mean, it, you know, again, it cannot be easy by any stretch to uncover some of these attributes to, to yeah. have to figure out who really is authentic and just powerful stuff. Um, okay. A high performing team is defined. This is you again, quote, a high performing team is defined less by how often it wins than by, than by how well it loses. Yeah. Okay. Explain that. Yeah, well, this is dynamic subordination. Okay, this is the idea that um, our you know teams and this is attributes. Okay, team. It's very easy to be a high performing team and to be the best and everybody everybody uh, be happy and cool when things are going well. Okay, so if you're winning all the time and everything's going well, um, that's easy. It's easy to be happy. It's easy to be nice. It's easy to be kind. It's easy to to have people's back when they uh, when they're doing everybody's doing the great the, the great work and everything's happening. Um, the way it's supposed to be happening. Um, right. It's when things go south and sideways that the true nature of our attributes really shows up and the true nature of our relationships on a team show up, okay? Because, because if the team is not set up uh, from the construct of attributes with the attributes we're looking for, for that team, um, that team will dissolve in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. It will become a mess, it will become toxic, you'll get infighting, uh, people will start blaming each other um, and performance will grind to a halt um, and um, if not derail altogether, right? Um, but those teams that you can see, I mean, we see it all the time, those teams that just bad stuff happens and they just power through and you almost see them become stronger and they become more bonded when things go wrong, right? Um, just to think of our lives if we have great marriages. I mean, in, our, in, in great marriages, great marriages are by definition ups and downs. And, right. and, and you go through hard times with your spouse. And I think any, any couple that's been married for a long time will say, hey, we, we stayed together because we were there for each other in the hard times. <laughs> you know, it wasn't because we were there together when everything was awesome, you know, that right. helped, you know, it helps because you can't have all downs, right? Uh, or you can't have all highs. Um, but you have to um, recognize that teams, great teams are great teams because they're great all the time, not just when things are going well, because it's easy to be great when things are going well and everything's easy and everything's certain and skills are all that's needed. Uh, it's only when attributes show up that you see if teams are really great. Powerful stuff. Um, all right. So last question to put a cap on all of this. You did mention it earlier, but I, I want to kind of, you know, diamond cut this with with this uh, last piece here about developing the attributes. Yeah. Because, you know, in the book, you say that attributes can be tweaked, they can be developed, and that you actually, you have a way um, mm -hmm. to develop. You, you can't learn attributes because these are something you're born with. It's just a matter of where on that line you fall. But the good news is you can develop them. So you talk about um, five steps to developing your attributes. And again, I know you touched on it earlier, but if if we could explain for the audience so that they can now take away from this podcast actionable stuff uh, and tweak, develop, uh, and uh, evolve their um, uh, their attributes with the acronym START. Mm -hmm. That's that's your method, START. So what does START stand for? How do you, how do you develop your attributes? Yeah. Um, so so the, so the quick kind of uh, back of the envelope version is start. Right. It's first a stop. Okay. Any anytime you're developing your attributes, it's going to mean that you're in discomfort and stress and challenge. Okay. Because that's that's how you have to be. Okay. So the okay. first thing you have to do is stop. Okay. Um, in other words, stop and then immediately go to the second one, T, which is think. Okay. Now you're saying, okay, what 
what, what am I, what do I want to develop here? Okay, so let's just take adaptability. Say you're in a situation where um, the environment is changing rapidly around you <laughs> and you're feeling very stressed because of it because you're not high on adaptability. Okay, first stop. All right, I got it. The, the, I need, the, the adaptability is something I need. Okay, now you think. Okay, adaptability is something I want to develop. I want to proactively do this. I need to make a conscious effort to be adaptable because my unconscious uh, my unconsciousness wants to take me into not being very adaptable, right? So that's the think part. Um, a is assess. You have to assess your environment, right? Um, uh, I think I'm getting these right. It's been uh, so. Let me know if I'm getting these wrong. Um, oh, you're on the money. Yeah. I, I assess. Assess the. Assess the situation. So in this situation, how can I adapt? It usually comes with with asking some questions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, respond or react. Okay. Do it. Okay. Uh, you know, so so now you're going to adapt. You're going to proactively adapt. Um, and then, and then um, the last T. You got to remind me what the last T is. Try. Because try uh, oh yeah. Sorry, so you want to. So you want to try again. You want to try a new environment. So this is kind of what we talked about. So 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 you can practice being adaptable in a in in one environment. But if you're constantly if you're constantly going to the same well uh, in terms of environment, then adaptability will become more of a rote kind of. Hey, this is kind of. It's not going to become a challenge anymore because you'll know exactly what to do. So try means try a new environment. Um, so that's the kind of the back of the envelope. Here's how to do it. Um, one of the things I've did, I've done since writing the book because I realized that was I was getting a lot of questions and I hadn't thought deeply enough about it. Is I've created workbooks that will be available on the website really? that go that 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 break down each attribute and how to develop that specific attribute. Um, and the reason why I did that is because it becomes a, it's a very subjective task. Um, my my adaptability is going to be different than your adaptability, or my resilience is going to be different than your resiliency. So so it's very subjective. So 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 the workbooks are designed to help someone took, take a look at the attribute, ask some very specific questions about themselves, um, and then develop that attribute for themselves. So that'll be offered on the website as well, so people can dive deeper into whatever the attribute they want to develop is. I think that you know the the whole stop and think and assessment piece you know that right there i mean no one i mean no one does most people don't do that intuitively right, right. because they're just stumbling through it all and it just becomes overwhelming but this idea of trying a new environment um you know kind of wading into another you know wading into uncertainty as yeah you, it so it, it it almost seems like we're building you know we're building a muscle uh, by continually going into a new environment uh, and, you know, kind of adding a new context to, to, to you know, to plot, to apply that attribute towards. Yeah. Yeah. And you become good and you, you become really good at that process. This is what I realized as a Navy SEAL. And really, I could I could I could been um, pretty, pretty much all spe special operators into this category is I call I call us masters of uncertainty. Um, and it's because we through our training, through our experience, through everything we do, we we become very, very good at that navigation process. It's not that we're good at any particular thing. What okay. makes spec operators so good at what they do is they become very good at dropping into uncertainty and immediately being able to navigate it through it, right? And they do this now often. They, you become very, you can become unconsciously competent in it, which means when I started to think about it, I said, okay, what actually do I do? <laughs> you know, and this is where I began to break this down into the start acronym and then in subsequently into these into these attribute development things. But what are those processes that we actually use to actually navigate uncertainty? Because that's what we get so good at. That's the that's the real superpower of spec operators um, and any other uh, any other professions that actually uh, uh, require that that level of of um, performance. 
I'll tell you what, this is, you know, so much of this is powerful insight after insight after insight. Um, I, I got to tell you, thank you so much for spending time with us today, Rich. Um, where can our audience learn more about you, uh, about what you're up to, the book, all the good stuff? Absolutely. Well, if you go to the attributes.com, that's the website, you'll be able to find the book. Um, you, uh, at least right now, uh, if you get there, um, and this is before it's on sale, then you can pre-order it and you can get the first chapter. Um, okay. We're also doing a live um, launch event on the 27th of January. So the day after uh, release, I'm going to do a launch event with my buddy, Andrew Huberman. So it'll be him and I live talking about the book. Um, so you can go there, you can order the book. We also have the assessment tool. So we've built an assessment tool for mental acuity, for, for grit, mental acuity, and the drive one. We're just starting to trying to finish up now, but you can basically get uh, take this assessment and see where you where you stand on each of these oh, attributes, great. right? And so now this is a snapshot. It's not going to be, it's going to basically be where you compare to a thousand other people that we've gotten data from, from around the world, right? Okay. So you may, out of a thousand people, you might be level six on adaptability, for example. So it's a snapshot to level, to, to let you know where you stand. And then it's going to take some self-reflection to see um, and codify actually where you do. So you can do that on the website. And then of course, I'll have the workbooks on the website. I'm also on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, Facebook as well. You can get to those links through the website as well. So all those places. Great. So, uh, and, and I, I love it. I love that you have these, uh, that you're going to have these assessments. When will they be available? Uh, they're available now. So you can go to the website now and at least do the grit and mental acuity. I'm not sure by the time, by the time this, this gets out there, we may have the drive up there. We're working on the drive right now, but uh, yeah. Great stuff. Rich, absolute pleasure. First and foremost, thank you so much for your service. And, you know, it's been an honor having you on the Alpha Human podcast. I wish you a very happy and healthy and successful 2021. As I do you, uh, my friend. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Take care. All right. You too.